Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 12, and uh, we'll get this screen switched over. Um, And uh, Genesis chapter 12, and uh, this is going to be, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and it is page 11 uh, in that pew Bible, so... Make sure you get a copy of God's Word. If you're online with us, welcome. And uh, we thank you and praise you, or uh, just uh, appreciate you joining us in that way as well. Um, Make sure you get a copy of God's Word in front of you as well. Now, in uh, really 1999 and 2000, there was a show that was really popular, and I remember watching this as a kid, and... uh, it was a show called, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Who remembers this? Who remembers this? Okay, alright. And I'm not talking about the later renditions. It was canceled in 2019, but uh, early on it was Regis Philbin. He was the host of this. And uh, this game show, uh, a contestant was given a list of uh, specific uh, questions, or really one at a time, they were given the task of answering these trivia questions. And uh, they would have four choices, it was a multiple choice, and they would have four choices to answer those questions, and uh, if they answered correctly, they moved to the next level, right? More money, and there were little uh, spots all along the way where it was kind of a safe zone, where they wouldn't lose everything, because if they get one answer wrong, then all of a sudden, they lose everything or they go back down to one of those levels. Now, All that aside, there was a question that was asked after someone selected A, B, C, or D every time. Does anyone remember what that was? Final answer. And if the person answered yes, then there was a long dramatic pause. And then you would see, you were on the edge of your seat, is it the right answer? And one of the interesting realities of watching that is every single contestant... For the first maybe five questions, they were sure. And really instantly, they'd answer and it was almost like they didn't even have to wait for the question to be answered. They would just sometimes even interject it beforehand. They would go, A, final answer. They wouldn't even wait. But as they progressed further and the questions got harder, you started to see a hesitation. Ah, I'm not sure this is the right answer. I don't really know. And inevitably, a majority of them would actually answer incorrectly long before they reached a million dollars and the game was over. Or they would get scared and they'd walk away. Now, what's interesting about this is our faith can oftentimes function very similar to this. 
early on, at the onset, when we first believe or we come to faith and we're really passionate and excited about who God is and what he's done for me and all that's taken place. And if someone were to come up to us in that moment and say, are you sure? Early on in our journey, we may be really prone to go, yes, without a doubt, I am certain of these things because it has changed my life. But the more we go through life, unfortunately, what often takes place is that we hit some bumps along the way. The realities that we face get more difficult and more challenging. And we find ourselves maybe teetering a little. And saying, I, I believe, but in this season, I'm struggling. And so, at the end of the day, and what we're going to see in this narrative, if, if you walk away with nothing else today, I want you to grab hold of this truth. And that's that assurance comes when our faith is rooted in the reaffirmed promises of God. Assurance comes when our faith is truly rooted in those promises that God has reaffirmed or is even actively reaffirming to you as the church over and over. And we're going to talk about how he reaffirms the promises he's already made and how we see him doing that in this narrative. Now, our story picks back up here with a man named Abram. And last time that we encountered Abram, last week, he wasn't doing so hot. The reality was, Abram had started this journey with the Lord really well. As we read even in Hebrews, called to go to a land, a foreign land, he stepped out in faith and he walked in obedience to the Lord. And then we see him worship the Lord as it goes through in chapter 12. He's worshiping the Lord at these major junctures or or chapter 11. But then we hit chapter 12 and all of a sudden we see a conflict arise and we see Abram's faith wane a little bit. And it waned to the point that he actually tries to take matters into his own hands. A famine enters the land. And so he takes all that he has to Egypt where they can seek refuge and food. And then he gets nervous about what's going to happen because his wife is really beautiful and uh, they might they might kill him. And uh, in this glimpse, Abram seems to forget the promises of God. And so we see him take action and he tells his wife, you know, tell them you're my sister, not my wife. And then it'll go well with me. And it was really all about Abram at this point and his fear of things going the way he thought they should go. And so he puts his wife in a precarious situation. He sets kind of stalls his whole livelihood and his workers in Egypt. And if that's where the story ends, you could be left wondering what now? Thankfully, there's a bit of truth we can grab hold of. God fulfilling his promises is not dependent on the faithfulness of man, but is simply dependent on the fact that God is faithful to his promises. So God being faithful to his promises, even though Abram sidesteps and he's 
just sinning. He's walking in disobedience and in a lack of faith before the Lord. God still brings them out of Egypt, delivers them from this mess that Abram created and sets them up for what comes next. And this is where we pick up in Genesis chapter 13. And they are actually returning to the place they were before they came to Egypt. So let's look at verse 1 of 13. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Whoo, he seems back on track, right? Here we go. A reset. Abram back in the place where he was before they went into Egypt and made those mistakes. Let's just forget about that. (laughs) And we're going to move forward. And it begins with Abram committing himself to worship the Lord. Now, It doesn't take long in this narrative for conflict to arise again. You see, we sometimes get so focused on main characters in these narratives uh, that we forget the other people involved. And in this situation, Abram's nephew named Lot, everyone say Lot, Lot was present in all of this. Lot joined Abram when he left and set out in obedience to the Lord and Lot would have been there in Egypt when all this was taking place. And therefore, Lot really would have benefited from the wealth of Abram. He, he, he wasn't just kind of a side guy. He was, he was doing well. Well, when they came back, there just wasn't enough space for everyone. There's not enough space for the livestock. They're competing with the people who are already in the land. And so this causes tension. This causes frustration of everyone involved. In fact, if you look there at verse 7, it says there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So you can imagine the types of conversations that were going on between the herdsmen who were frustrated with each other. And then they go to Abram and they go to Lot and they're frustrated with them. And they say, you need to deal with this. And it brings us to a place where we have to wonder, what will Abram do this time? Conflict again. Potential trouble. What will he do? So let's look at verse 8. It says, Then Abram said to Lot, There be, let there be no strife between you and me, between our herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. Now, some of your Bibles may have a little footnote or a a, a, a statement there in parentheses that says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, a side note to this, the reason that is there is because if you were to go to this place that's being described here now, you would find desolation, death. It's where the Dead Sea lies, where literally nothing can survive. It's desert and desolation. Now, if you hold on to that piece, we're going to see why that's the case in a few chapters of Genesis in some weeks, because God 
brings about judgment on this land and it has never been the same. But we get a glimpse of what was here as Lot looks out and sees what is and he goes, wow, this is really nice. So Lot, verse 11, chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then there's this little precursor to what's coming. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, what's really interesting here is as they separate Who gives who the first choice? Abram gives Lot the first choice. He allows, he really doesn't in this narrative seem concerned about which land Lot's going to take. Um, As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about every year, um, my two brothers and I take a hunting trip down south. Um, My grandpa's got some, about 250 acres of property down there and a cabin. We go down there, spend a weekend. First season of deer hunting, and we enjoy that time. But the big quandary every time we went years ago was that who gets to hunt where on the 250 acres? And so we came up with a system where, you know, there's three of us, so every third year you get first pick. And then the next year, you're if you got first pick, you're last next year. Okay. The reason we did this is because we wanted to eliminate the potential for conflict. Before we even started, okay? So I, I mention that because as we think about the potential conflict ensuing as they would maybe be selfish in nature and say, well, I want this land. Well, I wanted that land and I kind of wanted that too. Instead, Abram, this says a lot about his character, but not just his character. It shows that he had really no concern or anxiety in face Of the conflict with Lot. His decision to allow Lot to have first choice is not done under immense pressure or reluctance, but rather in faith. You see, Abram knew what God had promised to him. And his assurance was in the fact that God would fulfill that which he had promised to do. And it didn't matter. He didn't have to try and grapple for this on his own because God would be faithful. And this ultimately brings us to our next point in what we see in verses 14 through 17, that God affirms his promises through his word. So if you look at uh, verses 14 through 17, God, it says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, came up, settled by the oaks of Merme, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, we see God initially declare this promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And now God reaffirms this truth. He reaffirms once again to Abram, I'm going to give this to you. And notice, it is God who is the one who does the giving. God is the one who's promised to do this. He will see it through. 
And then Abram worships the Lord. He builds an altar to the Lord. Church family, the one who trusts in the promises of the Lord will not be shaken by earthly conflict of man. I want you to hear that again. The one who trusts, truly trusts in the promises of the Lord will not be shaken by the earthly conflict of man. A couple other places we see that. In, Genesis, or in Romans 12, it says, do, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. Family, may we not get drug into the pointless conflicts and controversies of the culture and the world around us. May you guard yourself against that. Abram could have easily become distracted from the promises of God by becoming overwhelmed by this conflict with Lot. We either believe God will be true to His promises or we don't. If we believe God will be true to what He has promised, then we also believe there is nothing that can shake that. And if I stand firmly on the promises of God, I too recognize I will not be shaken. One of the simplest ways to be reminded of God's promises is to read His Word given to you. God reaffirms what He has promised in His Word. We can't know what God has promised us if we don't know what He has said. Assurance comes when our faith is rooted in the reaffirmed promises of God. Now we shift gears, okay? Chapter 14. And there's a lot that happens in here. Really, war ensues. And what we're going to see in this is that God not only affirms His promises in His Word, but He affirms His promises through victory. Everyone say victory. Okay? He reaffirms, He affirms what He has promised through earthly victories that take place. Now, if we look at uh, verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 14, it says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shadorlomor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimember, king of Zeboim, and king, the king of Bela, that is Zor. So here is all of these kings that come together and they say, we're going to wage war against these other kings. Sounds familiar, right? We see this happen even today. And so war ensues, it breaks out, and Ultimately, this group of four kings that we see at the beginning defeat the group of five kings that we see later. And as the group of five kings flees, there's men who are, are you, some of you might see uh, bitumen pits that they're falling into. That's literally tar pits that these guys, as they're running away, they're falling into these tar pits. And in verse 13 of chapter 14, we see that then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. 
And what this man told Abram was, Lot is a casualty of this war. He's been taken captive by these kings. And in verse 14, it says, When Abram heard this, heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abraham, Abram saves the day. He rises up. We don't see any hesitation in him. Why? Why is Abram so confident to step into this war and this battle? Because he knows what God has promised to him. He's not afraid. He's not afraid to go against the forces of the world because the reality is he knows the God of the universe is on his side. I wish that I could say that every major challenge I've stepped into in my life I have the confidence and the faith that Abram has. Here's the hard, here's the hard reality. We struggle with this. We struggle to maintain consistency in faith because we allow the things of this world to cloud our vision of who God is. And as our vision becomes clouded of who God is, the things of the world start to, start to take a higher priority. And we forget what God has promised. And we lack the assurance that we need to stay rooted into these truths. And therefore we become really discouraged. And we, what used to be confident assertion begins to settle in as doubt and uncertainty. Assurance comes when our faith is rooted into the reaffirmed promises of God. God affirms his promises through victory. You here have stories of victory in your life. We celebrated last week nine baptisms of people who said, I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I'm choosing to walk in obedience. That's a victory over my flesh. Some of you have overcome great seasons of hardship and distress. Some of you have seen, witnessed firsthand what God has done in the lives of other people or maybe even in your own life. And we so easily forget these things. In Psalm 71, the psalmist is really depressed and discouraged and he comes back to this place of center and saying, I'm going to appeal to the faithfulness of the Most High. What does that mean? It means I'm going to look back and be reminded at all the victories that God has won on my behalf and on the behalf of others. And in that I'm going to hold because I know that He will be faithful to His promises. Amen? God affirms His promises through victory. He gives Abram this victory. In a similar interesting way, there's this really excellent quote by Kent Hughes. He says, As Abraham was to Lot, so Christ is to us. Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven waiting for us to deserve redemption. Neither was our redemption painless. Christ left the glories of heaven to come after us in the same way Abram left the comfort of the land he dwelled in and went after Lot. 
God reaffirms his promises through victory. Lastly, in this narrative, God affirms his promises through others. Everyone say others. Let's look at verse 17. It says, after his return from the defeat of Shedrul... I practiced this so much this week. I just want you to know that. And I knew there was one time I was going to slip. Shador Lamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of every thing. Now, there's a lot of, you could read pages and pages and pages of information about theories who this guy named Melchizedek was. And there's three times in scripture that we see him mentioned. Right here in Psalm 110.4 and then in Hebrews 7. Those are the only three places his name is mentioned. There's some people who speculate that he was uh, Christ showing up in the Old Testament. There's some people that speculate all kinds of things. And I, here's what I want you to hear. All of these are theories because what we have in Scripture is what we have. And so if you want to sit in the weeds and discuss that, I would love to get with you and do that. But at the end of the day, what we have to realize is that Melchizedek here served a purpose of really foreshadowing the eternal high priest that is to come, which is Jesus. That's what we see in Hebrews 7. Is that, that is what is described. And Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And king of Salem, really in, in specific language, also means king of peace. Salem here also eventually becomes Jerusalem. Okay? So there's so much significance here. But I don't want to get so distracted by the question of who is Melchizedek because it's all theory and speculation. But we can't miss what he does here. And he comes to Abram in the midst of this and God uses this man named Melchizedek to speak blessing over Abram but also to refocus on who is the victor. Look at the blessing again in verse 19. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. It's God who ultimately blesses. He's the one who gives blessing. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It is God who has the victory over our enemies. And apart from God in Christ, we will not be victorious. Because you and I are enslaved to our sin. And there is one way. And his name is Jesus. Abram, in recognizing this, gives him a tenth of everything. And then there's a shift in language here. As the king of Sodom, verse 21, said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Abram knew that his greatest reward had already been given to him in the promises of God. He was content with what God had already given. Now you may be sitting here today and you can think through the truths of God's word and how he's reiterated his promises in his word. You may think through victories that you've won. Um, but maybe you've ignored the voices of other people who've sought to reaffirm to you what God has promised. This is why community is so important, church family. This is why we need each other, because honestly, we get to points in our life where we're discouraged and we forget the promises of God. And I need other people. You need other people to come alongside you and remind you of what God has said in his word, what he has done in victories of the past. One of the greatest people who does that in my life faithfully is my wife. So often. Because I'll be struggling because I'm way more prone to fixate on the things that aren't done than the things that God has already done. Anyone with me in that? So much easier to fixate on the negative in life than to look back and say, but look what God has done. And almost every time I'll be sitting mopey in my chair at home. And my wife faithfully will come and say, I want you to think about the testimony of this person. I want you to think about. Which, what, what has happened in our lives, in our kids' lives. I want you to see. And what she's really forcing me to do is to step back, pan out, and go, stop being so narrow-minded. So sometimes it could be your spouse. Sometimes it needs to be some other faithful friends that you just intentionally give license to tell you when you are just being a mopey jerk. Okay? You, you need to have some people in your life that you give license to tell you when that's the case. And who can come alongside and say, hey, you need to focus, focus your eyes on something else. Because look, look, at, look at who God is. Look at what he's promised. Look at what he's done. Assurance comes when our faith is rooted in the reaffirmed promises of God. Now some may ask, you may get this question. Are you sure? Think back to that game show. Is that really what you think? Here's some truths I want you to grab hold of in application, church family. Apart from Christ, your assurance is rooted in yourself. If you are separated from Jesus, you are clinging to your own abilities. And finding assurance in that. And I'm going to tell you, there will come a day when you are not able to do what you do today. Whether it's age or illness or injury that causes that to come, there will come a day when you are grappling for something else because you realized that your assurance was in something that is not sure. Apart from Christ, your hope is in things that can be taken away. If you do not trust Christ with everything, then you are putting your trust in things that are going to disappear. 
This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 said, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. There's hope in this. There is more in store through Christ. It is only through Jesus. Now, while we are still learning, I pray we can move towards responses that sound more like this. And so as we close, um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And I want you to stand with me. Because this is really a declaration that I'm praying over you. That we corporately would be able to pronounce these things clearly and boldly. And then we're going to sing one last song that's standing on the promises. But I want you to hear this, okay? Listen to this. I want, I want our responses to start sounding more like this. In a day of political uncertainty, I want us to be able to say, we are certain that our King lives and that He's coming soon. In a day of relational uncertainty, I want us to say, we are certain that God deeply loves us and gave His Son on our behalf. In a day of financial uncertainty, I want us to say we are certain that our greatest treasure is not of this world. In a day of uncertainty, I pray that we can say that we are certainly rooted in the reaffirmed promises of God. May who we are today and who we become be rooted in the unfading, never-ending promises of God. Amen? Amen? Father, all of this for your glory. Root us into your promises for your glory in Jesus' name.